Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. So if you're with us, we're in a, a series that we're calling Redemption Through History. And here's what we're doing. It started uh, three or four weeks ago. And so we started at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1-1. And over the next few months, we are walking through the big picture story of the Bible. What is God's redemptive plan through all of creation and history? And so kind of catch you up. Here's where we started week one, way over here with a tree. And that tree was in the Garden of Eden, and God told Adam and Eve, don't eat of anything in this tree. And so the Bible starts with this tree where God created everything and was good. And then we get to this other story in a, few, in a, in a kind of halfway through the Bible of another tree way over here. And that tree is Jesus on the cross. And many, many Christians don't understand how do we get from this tree to that tree? And what was God doing, big picture? What is the story of the Bible that helps us to get from one to the other? And so that's what we're walking through. And so week one, we started way over here at this tree, and we said that God created everything good and created the world perfect with no sin. That humans rebelled against God, and in their sin brought curse and destruction into the world. Now, God could have left them on their own and said, okay, humans, I'm done with you. Good luck, I'm out. But he didn't do that. And while sin has spread throughout the world and caused all kinds of destruction and problems, God is going to be at work. And so we picked up in another story several hundred years later with this guy named Abraham. Now, Abraham was not this holy, righteous guy that was following God. And so God said, okay, Abraham. No, he didn't even know who God was. And God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, actually his name was Abram then, I'm going to start something in you that's going to fix this sin problem. And everything that went bad back here, something is going to be started here with you, and we're going to fix this thing. And he gave Abram three promises, God did. First promise, that you would have a son. He was, didn't have a son at this point. He was an old man. And you would have, out of this son would come a nation, a group of people who will have a land and out of this group of people will come someone who will bless the world, who will fix this thing. That was the promise. And so the next week, we took another step in this, and we looked at the promised son. So the first promise is answered, and Abraham has a son named Isaac. Now, if you remember the story, Abraham almost sacrifices Isaac on the mountain, right? And if we follow Isaac's story, after years of counseling, Isaac is, is able to grow up and have a family of his own, and he has a son named Jacob. We looked at Jacob last week. Jacob had a few issues. And you're going to see, he's going to still have some issues. Well, Jacob had 12 sons. And that's what we're going to look at today are his sons. And so the two sons that are important, it's a guy named Joseph and a guy I forgot his name. Second, I haven't done two in a while. Judah, thank you. Joseph and Judah. Judah will be the one, will be the line that Jesus will one day come out of. But today we're going to look at the story of Joseph. To understand this, understand this story, let's go 
to the end of the story. I want you to imagine ancient Egypt. I want you to imagine a big, a big palace in Egypt. And inside this palace is a courtroom. And then this courtroom, at the very front of the courtroom, up on this throne, sits the number two in all of Egypt, the, most, the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. And this is a courtroom. And in this court, you have all of his advisors over here and his servants and all these people. And this guy that sits on the throne has absolute power to do whatever he wants. And in front of him are 11 men. And they were bowed down before him. Because what was just revealed to this 11 11 men is who the identity of this person in power was. And here's the reality. These 11 men have betrayed him. And now the tables are turned and he is in charge. And I can imagine just the silence in the room that goes out as everyone's anticipating what is going to happen. Like we didn't, we didn't see this coming. What's going to happen here? In the silence, you can almost see this man up here in charge like he's, he's thinking, just processing the stories of his life, the story he's been through. And I picture these men out here on their faces trembling. Like this is ancient Egypt. There's no due process. There's no attorney out there. There's no jury. There's one person in charge and they have wronged him and caused an incredible amount of misery in his life. What will he do? What would you do? Let's see how we get ourselves there. Because in the story of Joseph, what I'd like you to think about is puzzle pieces. And all through the story of Joseph, you're going to see these different pieces and different shapes, and they're going to appear like they're just kind of random. And we're going to ask the question, how do all of these pieces come together and get us to that scenario I just played out before you. Well, let's find out. Let's go to Genesis chapter 37, verse 3. <clears throat> now Israel, and this is Jacob, his name was changed to Israel. Now Jacob loved Joseph. So Jacob's the father. Jacob loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. So Jacob's an old man, and he has this boy. And he made Joseph a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to them. So if you're taking notes here, I want you to see this idea that Jacob loved Joseph more. Now, we talked about Jacob last week. Remember how Jacob had a few issues? He had a, he had a big issue with choosing someone that he was going to find his identity in. And that someone last time was this girl named Rachel. And he fixed his eyes on Rachel. And here's what he said, Rachel, you are going to be my girl and you are going to fix all of my insecurities. And he had some. He'd been through some stuff when he was younger. You're going to fix everything for me. I'm gonna, if I get you, Rachel, then I will be complete and I will finally be at peace. And Brad, speaking last week, he introduced us to this idea of a functional savior. And what Brad said is that Jacob made Rachel a functional savior. Now, what's a functional savior? A functional savior is anything that we put 
in the place of saving us from the angst and the hurt and the emptiness that we all feel. Something other than Jesus that we say, this thing will make me feel like I'm part of something bigger than myself. This thing will heal my brokenness. This thing, this thing will take care of that anxiety that we all feel, that anxiousness, that, that quest for meaning that we all have. That's a functional savior. Now, the reality is God created the world for us to find those things in him, to find our identity, to find our acceptance, our approval, to find all those things in him. But the flaw of sin is that every single one of us wants to take something else and put it up there and say, that will satisfy me. Now, it looks different for everyone. I say this a lot. This is why today, all across the United States of America, grown men will take off their shirts, will paint their chest, and will cheer for some people throwing around a piece of pigskin. And they will go crazy. They just want to be part of something bigger than themselves because they are wired and designed by God to do, to, to, to do that, to, to be part of something bigger. But our flaw is that we take something else and put it up there. It could be a job, money, all the college students here, relationship. If I can just have blank, then I will have acceptance, approval, significance, whatever word you want to put in. That's a functional savior. And so Jacob did that to a woman last week. The problem is functional saviors can't deliver. They're not God. And so he finally got the woman and guess what he said? Oh, that's not enough. I need another woman. Well, now fast forward a few years in his life, he's done the same thing again. It's just now his son Here's what Jacob has done. He has taken his, son, taken his son Joseph and said, you will be the thing in my life that gives me a sense of meaning and significance. He just made Joseph a functional savior. And he makes him this coat of many colors. Now, this is ancient Egypt. Colors were very rare. This is pre-manufacturing area. These, these would have been like a, a very special gift to have a coat of colors. And so he makes his, makes his coat and gives it to him. And what has just happened is Jacob has just driven a wedge between Joseph and his brothers. First piece of the puzzle. Remember that. Joseph's sin, sorry, Jacob's sin of choosing Joseph as a favorite has just created a wedge. Now, psychologists, psychiatrists, here's what they call what's happened here. They call this emotional incest. Whenever, <laughs> thank you. They call it emotional incest whenever a parent chooses a child and says, you will be the person that will give me this sense of identity and security and acceptance. And you would be surprised. It happens all the time. All the time. I've worked with with young people who their parent has said to them, not said, but has done, you will be the thing that makes me feel good about myself. You will be my functional savior. And here's the problem, is kids cannot handle the weight of misplaced passion. They cannot handle it. Children aren't created by God to take the weight of being God for their parents. It's a losing game because nothing can satisfy but God. And so this happens when a mom says to her daughter, I'm going to live vicariously through you. 
And I'm going to try to control every little thing that you do because really I'm kind of living my life through you. Or she says to her son, I'm going to control every bit of thing that you do. I'm going to make sure you don't choose this girl. I'm going to be involved in every little detail because you have to make me feel significant. And it crushes kids. And it creates mixed emotions. And when we look at the story of Joseph, he has to have some mixed emotions. Like on one hand, these kids, they enjoy the attention from their parents. I mean, they've been, been you know, called the special one, but at the same time, they feel the burden and the weight of making their parents happy. And these kids always have to be on to make their parent happy. They enjoy the privileges. But on the same hand, they feel guilty because they know it isn't right, and they feel guilty that they even kind of enjoy it, and it's this mixed emotions. And here's what happens in this. It always causes resentment with other siblings because everyone else knows the score. Often, it even causes resentment from the other spouse. So if a mom makes a daughter kind of her chosen functional savior, the husband will resent the daughter. And that's exactly what's happening. And it's a piece of the puzzle. And one of the things you're going to see as we go through the story of Joseph that can even be hard to make sense of is that Joseph's sin will cause a chain of events that will bring a ton of misery but at the same time, it will bring good. As we look at this story of Joseph, you're going to see two forces at work. You're going to see on this side over here, this force of evil and sin and misery and destruction. Jacob choosing jo Joseph is over here. That's sin. But on the other hand, you're going to see on this side, this other force working, and that's God who's working all things for good. Now, here's going to be our temptation to do is to try to move each scenario, one piece of the puzzle's over here. Oh, that's all evil. Oh, and then this one's over here. That's all good. That's not what the Bible teaches. They are both going at the same time. So Jacob has chosen Joseph as a favorite, and Joseph will swim in the wake of that destruction for many years to come. But on the same hand, on the other side, God is working for good. So in, in verses 4 through 17, we're going to look a, a lot at this story, kind of high level. Let me summarize. Joseph starts having some dreams. He starts having two separate dreams that his brothers, remember he's the youngest, that his brothers will bow down to him. That was the ancient world. High, you know, the, the birth order is everything. And this is totally out of whack. And not only does he have these dreams, <clears throat> He shares them with his brothers. Hey, by the way, one day I had a dream. You're going to bow down to me. Okay, side note, pause. We have any younger siblings in here? Don't share that, all right? Just don't. Just keep it to yourself. It's not going to go good for you, as you're going to find out. So there's already a wedge driven between the brothers because he has this coat. Well, now he's sharing these dreams, and the brothers got to be thinking, oh, yeah? <laughs> you have that dream, huh? We'll see what we can do about that. Well, in the meantime, the brothers are out uh, you know, with the livestock, out with the herds. They're several miles from their home. They're out working, and Jacob, the father, sends Joseph to go check on his brothers. Now, side note, why was Joseph not out in the field working? He was a favorite. Would you ever been there? You're out there chasing cows around all day. Yeah, a little spoiled brat sitting at home with his feet up. 
So in 4 through 17, that's what happens. Jacob sends Joseph to go check on his brothers. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. Notice that? They, they don't feel very guilty about this. Like they threw him in a pit, took his coat, and like, let's eat. I'm hungry. It was a long, hard day's work. And looked up at, looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bringing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah, now remember, that's the brother that the, the line of Jesus will come from. Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let our, not, let our hand be upon him for he is our brother in our own flesh. And so he's like, okay, Judah's, all right, I mean, let's not kill him. That's kind of bad. He's our brother, right? It's good thinking. But maybe we can turn this thing for a profit. Verse 28, the, Israelite, the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. So these brothers have just turned their back on their youngest brother and sold him into slavery. By the way, this decision they made will cause regret and shame with these brothers for the rest of their lives. We'll see that later on. They never got over selling their brothers into slavery. And so on one hand, there's evil and sin at work. Let's sell our brother as a slave. And it's working but at the same time, there's an invisible hand at work. And we have this other piece of the puzzle. We have this piece of Joseph's the favorite. Now we have this other piece of sold into slavery. What the brothers didn't know, that in their, in their attempt to destroy Joseph and his dreams, they were actually fulfilling them. So Jesus, or Joseph is brought to Egypt. Now Egypt's the conquering nation right now. They're the, they're the biggest power in the world. But let's try to get in this story. Like one of the things as I go through these narratives, I've got to try to put myself in this story. I want us to put ourselves. Can you imagine being Joseph here? You're put in a little cart pulled by a donkey with bars around it. And as you're going to a place you don't know where you're going and you see your brothers getting smaller and smaller and smaller on the horizon. Can you imagine the pain? You know you'll probably never see them again and you know that you will probably never see your father again and he will never know what happened to you. Can you picture Joseph bouncing along that road just thinking through this and weeping? Can you imagine Joseph's feeling of betrayal? He's just been betrayed by his family and sold for a few pieces of silver. Can you imagine his desire for justice? I mean, after the pain goes away and after those tears dry up a little bit, there's got to be this plan of how can I get justice here.
but it's another piece in the puzzle. Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. So Potiphar's a very important man. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. Okay, stop. I've been wrestling with this message all week, knowing I had to preach it. I even kind of pulled our staff aside and our elders aside Thursday, and I was like, guys, I'm struggling here. Because here's why. I know some of your stories. And I've set a cross from some people. Just in the past week or two, I've heard stories that made me sick to my stomach and make me want to throw up in the trash can because I know some of the pain that you guys have been through and you're going through. And we have this little phrase here, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. And I know some of you out there are saying, uh, BS. How? Because if Christians teach that God is good and he loves everything and everyone, but you also teach that God's in control and in charge, uh-uh. Those two things cannot come together when you see what I've been through. And I know you're out there. And the Lord was with Joseph. I wonder if he felt that. As he's bouncing down the road to Egypt, as he pulls in the city gates, as he stands up in the auction block and they're raffling him, you know, auctioning him off and someone's like, yeah, I'll buy it. I wonder if he felt the Lord is with me. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. I want you to notice as you read the story, the verbs that come along with Joseph's story and that God is the one that those verbs are attached to. The Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. And the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and the field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So Potiphar is this important person. He sees that Joseph is faithful and that God had blessed him. And he's so, and Joseph's so talented and diligent with affairs that he's like, hey, Joseph, you're in charge. You're in charge of my business, my family business. You're in charge of my land, my house. Like, it's vacation time for me. You're in charge, Joseph. You're trustworthy. Side note, I want you to notice in the story the flourishing that comes along with righteousness and faithful living. Joseph is faithful here, and the people around him flourish. We had a parent conference this weekend for, for young parents. One of the questions the speaker asked the, the first night, she was talking about how as parents, one of the best things we can do for our home is to pursue righteousness and, and faithfulness and not bring brokenness into our family. And here's a question that she asked that's resonating with me, and I'm going to keep thinking about it. I've been thinking about it. 
shouldn't ask what kind of sin are you knee deep in that you're just destroying everything. Here's the question she asked. What's an area in your life, an area where you're just acting foolish? What she's teaching us here and what we see here is there's a, there's, when righteousness comes, there's flourishing around. Where foolishness and sin comes, there's destruction. Husbands, do your families flourish because of your faithfulness? Wives, do your husbands flourish? Do your children flourish? of your faithfulness. Young men, do the women around you that you're not married to flourish because you're following Christ? Young women, do your friends and the men around you flourish because of your commitment to Christ? Where there's righteousness, there's flourishing. And we see that right here. And it says that the Lord caused all that Joseph did to succeed and so what we see is not God sitting back and watching these events unfold, that he's actually leading this story. Now, it finally appears that good fortune's coming his way. I mean, he's been through some bad things, but it's like, whew, I'm glad those bad things are, are behind me. And you can see Joseph thinking, okay, I can see how God was working in my life to get me here, and now I'm in charge of all these things. But verse 6 says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Some of us guys know what that's like. <laughs> Verse 7, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Now, if you're not familiar with the wording in the Bible, she's not asking to go around the palace telling little white lies. And... Verse, Verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of my master has... Because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything that he has in, in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything back from me except you because you're his wife. That's good. How then can I do this wickedness and sin against God? Now, this is character. This is faithfulness. Like, here's what we know. Potiphar's a wealthy guy. He's a, he's a man of importance. His wife would have been beautiful. And she just came to him and said, hey, let's do this. But where there's righteousness and faithfulness, there's flourishing. See, wisdom considers the cost of sin. And here's what you see Joseph do. Wisdom comes upon him. Wait a second. All that, like, I'm in charge here and everything's good. Why would, I, why would I ruin this thing? Why would I turn my back? I'm Potiphar's to trust. What, what, I've got a good thing going. Wisdom. That's a sin against God. It's in what God has for me. There's a reason God gave me this command to be faithful. I'm going to trust him. Where wisdom happens, flourishing happens. Where in your life are you starting to walk in foolishness that may end in destruction? See, Jesus was very graphic about the cost of sin. Let's think about some of the things that Jesus taught. Because he gave us a visual of what sin is like because he wants us to have some wisdom when it comes to sin. So here's what Jesus says. Sin is like this. It's like a son going to his father 
and saying, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Now, in our day, here's what a son going to his father, Dad, I wish you were dead. That's what sin's like. Jesus would say this. Sin is like tying a millstone around your neck, a big heavy rock, and jumping into the sea. And I think this, Jesus wants us to have this vision of us sinking in, the, in, the, in the, the, the top of the water, getting further, and us trying to swim up and just drowning, because that's what sin's like. And Jesus would talk about sin like this. It's like a man who gouges out his eye. And I think Jesus wants us to picture that happening. He would say this. It's like cutting off your hand. And I think he wants to feel this, wants to feel this saw going back and forth slowly as it goes through muscle and sinew and bone. See, Jesus was very visual and very descriptive about sin because he knows that sin causes destruction. To my life and the people that I care about most. Wisdom considers the cost of sin, and Joseph walks in wisdom. It's like, no, I'm not doing that. All right, another piece of the puzzle. Man, Joseph, you were faithful, God tested you. You're faithful, but you can see this coming together, and now you're gonna stay in leadership in Potter's house, and you're even Potiphar's house, you're even more faithful. The problem in verses 10 to 19, here's what happens. She gets really upset that he turned him down. So she makes up a story and says, oh no, actually he assaulted me. Verse 19 of chapter 39. As soon as his master Potiphar heard the words that his wife had spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined, not a good place. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. All right, Hood, stop. Are you kidding me? The guy's been faithful. The guy just showed an incredible amount of courage and integrity. And the Lord was with Joseph. And he showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. I wonder if he felt it. And whatever he did, the Lord made him succeed. So Joseph is unwavering as a commitment to God and he keeps his integrity, keeps his character. And because of that, even though he's in prison in a terrible place, he begins to get favor again from the guards because they see that he's a man of character. And so they place him in charge of all the other prisoners and appears that the Lord is at hand that's working here. And so you can almost see Joseph thinking, okay, What's going on here? Like there's this other piece of the puzzle. I'm not sure how they all fit together yet, but I might see that God's working here. But let's put ourselves back in Joseph's shoes. Can you imagine the pain? 
You've been nothing but faithful to Potiphar. You've been nothing but faithful to God. You've said no to this advance of a woman, and you're in prison. Can you man, imagine the pain? Can you imagine the sense of betrayal? Can you imagine the desire for justice? And I can picture Joseph sitting in a cell, a cell. And his movie of his life is just playing through his mind. Now in chapter 40, here's what happens. He's in prison and two of Pharaoh's, the, the number one in charge, Pharaoh, two of his servants are put in prison with him. One of his is a chief a chief cupbearer, that was a person who would bring the wine to the king and he would taste it first to make sure it wasn't poison. It's a great job to have. And his chief baker, they were both in prison. Apparently the baker had made some bad muffins or something, I don't know, but something made Pharaoh mad, he throws him in prison. Well, these two have dreams and they don't know what to make of these dreams. They come to Joseph and they're like, hey, we've had these dreams. Now remember the dreams that Joseph had when he was little. It's another piece of the puzzle. And so Joseph interprets the dreams. Here's what he says. Hey, cupbearer, um, guess what? In a few days, you're going to be released and put back to where you're into service of Pharaoh. Baker, <laughs> sorry, not so good for you. You're going to be executed. Well, a few days later, on the birthday of Pharaoh, it happens. The cupbearer is restored to position and the baker is executed. Now Joseph told this cupbearer, hey, remember me? Like they've been in prison together. They've got to be buddies at this point. Hey, I just interpreted this dream. It's coming true. And you can see him on his way out. Hey, remember me. Tell them about me. Tell them about how I'm wrongly accused. Tell them how I'm faithful. Tell them, I can tell them about me. Verse 23 of chapter 40 Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Can you imagine the pain, the sense of betrayal, and the desire for justice? Chapter 41, Pharaoh starts having dreams. And after a while, the cupbearer remembers Joseph. Oh yeah, there's this guy in prison that interpreted this dream. And so Pharaoh's having these dreams and he can't find anyone that can make sense of it. And so the cupbearer finally, probably very timidly approaches Pharaoh. Uh, hey, there's this guy in prison. And actually right before you brought me back, he kind of told me that was going to happen because I had this dream. And so Pharaoh's like, all right, bring him to me. And so he brings Joseph to, to him and, and Joseph interprets this dream. And here's what he tells Pharaoh. Hey, you're going to have seven years of abundance. Like there's going to be grain and wheat everywhere. But it's that seven years of abundance is going to be followed by seven years of famine. And so you need to prepare for it now. And here's what you need to do. You need to get storehouses. You need to take a tenth of everything and just, just lays out a plan for it. Verse 40 of chapter 41. So Pharaoh says to him, you shall be over my house. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This isn't Potiphar anymore. This is Pharaoh, number one. <coughs> You'll be over my house. And all of my people shall order themselves as your command. 
Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. Like, you're in charge of everything. Just remember, I'm still in charge of you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bowed the knee. Thus he set them over all the land of Egypt. Thirteen years ago, Joseph arrives as a slave, and now he is the second highest in command. And all of a sudden, these pieces start to come together. It was for this very moment that God orchestrated all of Joseph's experiences. And all of his experiences, all the trials that he's went through, and that developing a character that he's went through, has got, God's preparing him to be now vice president. And here's what we know. If his brothers would not have sold him, sold him into slavery, he would not be in Egypt. If there is no Egypt, there's no prison. If there's no prison, there's no cupbearer. There's no cupbearer, there's no dreams for the Pharaoh. And he's not, if there's no dreams for the Pharaoh, he's not second highest command. God has taken all these pieces of brokenness and he's brought them together to put Joseph exactly where he wants him to be. Now the question, how does this little story of Joseph fit in to this big picture story of between the trees of getting us to the cross? Because God, remember God told him, you're going to have a son. He's already had a son. You're going to have a nation and land. And out of this nation will come someone. Well, God is starting to develop a nation because here's what happens. There's a famine back where his brothers are from, just as Joseph said there would. No one has grain except for Egypt because of Joseph's leadership. His brothers don't know what happened to him. They figure he's some, he's some slave somewhere. His father has no idea. He thinks he got killed. And his brothers come to Egypt to beg for grain, to ask for assistance, welfare from Egypt. And eventually they make it and appear before Joseph. Now, Joseph doesn't tell him who he is for a while. He plays with him for a few chapters, which is awesome. I'd have totally done the same thing. <laughs> they don't recognize him at first. But again, let's go back to where I started you, in this courtroom inside this palace. And all of a sudden, Joseph takes off his hat and takes off whatever ornaments he has, and he says, surprise. Can you imagine the instant fear that just came over those brothers? What will Joseph do? What would you do? And that's the moment where all the pain has got to be replaying in Joseph's mind. And those feelings of betrayal are there. And man, can you Imagine the desire for justice. But God has crafted this thing for this very moment because God needs these 12 brothers to come under the protection of Egypt so that their families can grow and flourish because God has a plan for these 12 brothers and their family. 
chapter 50, verse 19. Joseph said to them, what's he going to do? Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. That's one side. But God meant it for good. That's the other side. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. I love that. And your families. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So all of Jacob's children are now in Egypt. They're under the care and protection of the second highest in command. They have all the food they wanted. Had Joseph not been through all these trials, his brothers would probably have starved in the wilderness. No food. There's a famine in the land. But because of God's plan in, Joseph, in Joseph's life, he now can provide for his brothers. How could Joseph respond the way he did? I'm not going to tell you that Joseph was just a great guy, had no sin. I'm not going to tell you that. Here's why I believe Joseph could respond the way he did. He had good theology. He knew what he believed about God. Here's what he says. Am I in the place of God? He understood God's providence in his life. And all of a sudden, all these puzzle pieces fit together, and Joseph says, okay. I finally see what God was doing. What do you believe about God? Here's what the Bible teaches. That God is in charge of everything. It's one of the foundational truths we teach our kids. We have five foundational truths we teach our little ones. That's one of them. The Bible teaches that God is in charge of everything. And in the story of Joseph, would you guys agree that God was in charge? <laughs> Here's the other foundational truth, another one we teach our kids, that God is good. Now, a lot of people have a problem with those two things because they see those as opposite. So the question is, as I look at this story of Joseph, can I come to the conclusion and belief about God that God is in charge and that God is good? Can I come to that conclusion? Here's what... Genesis 45, another part of the story I didn't have time to read. He's talking to his brothers. He says, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Do you see the two forces? You sold me. That's this force, the evil. But God sent me. That's the God part. It's not one or the other. It's not they sold him and God's trying to figure out, okay, how do I make this work? You sold me. God sent me. Here's what Psalm 105 says about the story of Joseph. When he, this is God, summoned a famine, notice that God also sent the famine. When, you, when he summoned a famine in the land and he broke all the supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Do you see what God's doing? He says, I want this group of people here and I want them to have means so they can grow and prosper. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send someone ahead of them to get in a position Then I'm going to send a famine to make these brothers come over here to get this protection and then make this family settle in Egypt where they have security and means to grow. That's what God was doing. All of a sudden, these puzzle pieces just, they come together. And we see the redemptive plan of God 
at work. That God sent. He didn't react, he sent. God was in control. That God directed everything in Joseph's life to make sure he was exactly where he wanted to be. So when the brothers sold Joseph, Joseph into slavery, they were crafting evil, but at the same time, God was crafting good. I want you guys to hear me on this, though. While Joseph was a faithful man, God did not keep him from suffering. Never buy into the lie that if I just do what God wants me to do, I won't have suffering. That is a lie, and the Bible will never tell you that. It is possible to be faithful and be a person of integrity and suffer like crazy. And be right where God wants you to be. So this story of Joseph's life and the reason, if you're familiar with Genesis, like it, Genesis kind of goes through the, all these, these stories of this family and then it hovers over Joseph's story for several chapters. It slows down here. And the reason I think the Bible does that, it wants us to come under this teaching and understand two things about God, that he is in control of everything and he is good. And God being active in this story teaches me those two things. Now, here's again what, you're gonna, what some of you are going to say. All right, Hood, that's great because it all worked out. Like you just put in a nice little package, all neat, with a little pretty bow on top, and they lived happily ever after. Well, the problem is the Bible keeps going. We'll get to that next week. But the Bible's not going to lie to you. And we will not lie to you. I will never sell you some cheap cheap faith that says, believe these three things and here's three little things you need to do for your marriage and have a good day. God loves you. I will never sell you that. We will be as honest as we can with you because the Bible's honest. And the Bible never promises ease and comfort even when you're following God and even when you are righteous. I'll give you an example. A guy named John, John the Baptist. He's baptizing people. He's been sent to kind of prepare people for the Messiah. He sees Jesus coming, and here's what he cries out. Behold the Lamb of God. Like, that's the Messiah. Come to take away sins. He makes this great proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah. And he teaches everyone, you need to follow him. It's not me, it's him. And he's this great moment in his life where he's like, this is Jesus, the person that's come to save us. Fast forward a few years. John is put in prison. And he's sitting in this prison cell. He's been beaten. He's got shackles on him. And he starts having doubts. Wait a second. If that's Jesus, why am I here? And so John sends a few of his little disciples out to Jesus and says, you got to find out about this guy. And here's what he says. It's Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. Now, when John was in prison and heard about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Here's what they say to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Do you understand that question? Jesus, are you true? Are you real? Like this is John that's already said that, but now he's in prison. His world is falling apart and he has this doubt of, wait a second, maybe I made a mistake here. Are you the one to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him, go and tell John what you hear and see. So Jesus has a response. And here's what he says, quote, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, 
The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the good news preached to them. Now, to us, that may not make much sense. Okay, that, what, what kind of an answer is that? Here's what Jesus has done. He's just quote, quoted the book of Isaiah on prophecy on what the Messiah would do when he arrived, that he would heal and he would do all these things. And to us, we're like, okay, that's an interesting response. But when John the Baptist heard that response from Jesus, John knew exactly what Jesus was telling him. Because here's what Jesus does when he quotes this passage. He leaves out one little important phrase in the book of Isaiah. Because the book of Isaiah also adds, he will proclaim liberty to the captives. Or other translations say, he will set the captives free. Jesus left that out. And immediately, John the Baptist would have known Yes, I am the Savior, I am the Messiah, and you will die in prison. And a few days later, he'll get his head cut off. Another one of the disciples, Peter. Jesus comes to Peter. He says, Peter, I love you, but here's the deal. When you were young... You used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you get old, Peter, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Here's what he just told Peter. Peter, in a few years, you will be crucified just like I was. Now he'll do it upside down because they don't want to be like Jesus. He's going to tell Peter, so you love me and you serve me and you do what I've called you to do until that day comes. And Peter cries out. He's like, well, what about John? <laughs> okay, Jesus, like if I'm going to suffer like that, I'll, I'll do it. But what about John? What about him? And here's what Jesus says. Peter, what does it matter about John? You follow me. You trust me. You trust that I'm in charge of everything and I am good. And you trust and obey and follow And this is what has caused me angst this whole week, knowing I have to preach this. I, again, I know some of your stories. And some of you are going to ask the question, okay, really, Hood, where was God when this happened? Where was God when I was being violated? You tell me. Tell me where he was. Where was God when my little child was suffering in the hospital and almost died? Or that my child that did die, where was God then? Where was God when I was suffering that injustice? Where was he? See, that question all comes down to what you believe about God. Do you believe that God's in charge of everything and that he is good? Because the answer is yes, and here's what I'll tell you. God was right there with you. And I'm not going to lie to you and tell you I can put those pieces together in a nice little picture for you. I don't know yet. But by faith, here's what I believe, that while evil was meaning things for bad and destruction, God was meaning them for good. And in your stories, I can see the mercies of God working to good as broken as they are. No matter what you've been through, or glory or pain, God was there in the middle of it. He was working for good. While evil wants to destroy and work for bad, God 
is working for good. And my hope is that some of you might say, maybe there's going, more going on here than I thought. Maybe in the midst of the brokenness and the pain and these puzzle pieces that I don't understand, maybe God is working to good. Here's what Romans 8.28 says. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things means all things. Failure, sin, joy, success, all things work to good. They're all broken pieces, but in God's goodness and mercy, he's bringing those pieces together into something beautiful. And here's the reality. You're going to ask me why? Why does this happen? And here's what I'll tell you. I don't know why it happens. And I can't fix it for you as much as I want to. I can't fix it. And I can't make those pieces go where they need. But here's what I believe, that God is making those pieces fit together for his glory and for your good. And you probably will never get the answer to why. And I'm going to argue you probably ultimately don't need that answer. What you need to understand is the theology of God. He's in charge of everything and he's good and his presence is with you. Hear me, church, your sufferings, no matter how excruciating and painful, are not meaningless. Your loss, no matter how devastating it hurts, your loss was not in vain. God is working for good. So let's ask what we believe about God. Let's look at the story of Joseph. How many of you have read this? Have we read this story of Joseph? When you read this, how many of you come to the conclusion that God was in charge of that story? Raise your hand. If Don't vote if you don't feel like it. <laughs> Raise them high. How many of you come to the... Okay. Next question. When Joseph was sold into slavery, was God being good? Raise your hand. When Joseph was put in prison... Was God being gracious and good? When he was falsely accused, was God good? When he sent the famine, was God good? It's a little bit easier with perspective to look back and say, oh, can you trust him in your life where you can't look back with perspective? Now, here's what we told you. Every single story in the Bible is ultimately the story of Jesus. Every story is about Jesus. And if you and I would have looked, lived 2,000 years ago and been one of Jesus' disciples, we would have seen Jesus get arrested and go through trial and be marched out and whipped and beaten and taken up to a hill to get ready to be put on a cross. And we would have said to ourselves, God, I thought you were in charge of this thing. This guy says he's a son of God. He says he's here to save the world and he's up on a cross. Really, God, are you in charge? God, how are you good? If that's good, I don't want any part of you. That's what we would have said. But with perspective, can we not see that that whole thing that Jesus went through was to God, for God to rescue the entire world and to bring us back to himself? That in the whole thing, God was in charge of every single step. God knew Judas would betray him. God knew the soldiers of mocking. God knew all of that, and God was orchestrating it to rescue humanity. 
And so Joseph, the whole point of the story of Joseph is to point us to Jesus because he's the hero. And let's think about it. Just like Joseph, Jesus would one day be stripped of his robe. And just like Joseph, Jesus would be sold for a few pieces of silver. And just like Joseph, Jesus would be wrongly and falsely accused. Just like Joseph, Jesus would be thrown in prison. Just like Joseph, Jesus would be abandoned by the people that cared about him most. Just like Joseph, he would face the punishment deserved by another. Just like Joseph, Jesus would suffer and it was all for good. Do you see Jesus in the story? Can you see Jesus in your story?